Uh, but that's who the questioner is trying to disprove rather than prove. And he works it backwards. He said, if there's no moral law giver, then there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, then there's no good. And if there's no good, there's no evil. The question breaks down on its face. Welcome to another episode of the Aptcast, where iron sharpens iron and we poke each other with the pointy ends. I'm your host, Wes, flying solo this go-round, so um, fortunately there's no one to poke with the pointy ends today. Nevertheless, thanks for tuning in, and if you like what you hear, please share us uh, on Facebook. We're there, facebook.com slash aptpodcast. Give us a like. Share the content. Uh, let people know you love us. Let us know uh, what you think. Uh, shoot us a message there with topic suggestions, with criticisms, critiques, uh, any kind of feedback we get. We like. We always love hearing from our listeners. Also on iTunes, drop in, give us a five star rating and review if you don't mind. We greatly appreciate that. Helps get the word out. We have some new likes. Actually, uh, a new like. New listener, uh, Jahul Hoke, thanks for liking the show. Hope you enjoy it. Also, we got a new review. Thanks to the Painting Sports the Right Way podcast for shouting us out there on iTunes uh, with a, a great review here. They say we're better than Kant. The way this podcast applies theology and philosophy in the episodes is wonderful. This stuff is arguably better than Kant. Thank you, guys. And for our listeners, I recommend listening to Eli and Caden over there on Painting Sports the Right Way. They are in the middle of a neat series going through uh, the greatest of all time in various uh, sports. Uh, kind of a March Madness bracket style is really interesting. So go check them out. And thanks for the review, guys. We appreciate it. Our main topic today concerns the loss of a great mind not just uh, a public intellectual, but a modern giant of the Christian faith in Ravi Zacharias. He passed away Tuesday of this week. And I mentioned him before in our uh, introduction to the Tulip series when Alex and I were talking about uh, his favorite Calvinist and my favorite non-Calvinist. Ravi's name uh, is at the top of my list. A lot of the reasons why I've appreciated his ministry so much over the years really goes back to the impact he had on me in my early development as a Christian when I was getting into really what does it mean to apply my beliefs to to real life? You know, in in some ways, the the seed that germinated ultimately into uh, this very podcast. And as I was getting into the world of apologetics, I was listening to a lot of William Lane Craig debates because his skill putting arguments together in a debate setting was phenomenal. Uh, another person that really stood out as an early influence was Ken Samples from Reasons to Believe, who really opened the door to 
on Reformed theology for me. But Ravi Zacharias was also there in the way he spoke, and especially the way he answered questions. It was really neat to hear him. For one, he's uh, for for those who don't know or aren't familiar with uh, Ravi Zacharias, he was born and raised in India, so he has a very distinctive voice and honestly a very pleasant voice to listen to. So he really stood out among all of the other preachers and pastors and speakers and teachers that I, that I was listening to at the time. So he had a really unique voice, but he also had this way of connecting with a person. He, he always talked about how behind every question, there's a questioner. And that's really what he was constantly going after, was not just attacking the problem or answering a question, but reaching out and using his response as a way to touch the person behind the question. And he had a way to blend humor and wit and wisdom in storytelling all together in a way that I haven't seen anybody else do and do so with an overabundance of love, love for God, love for the person in front of him, love for the people he was talking to in everything that he did. Uh, it was covered uh, with love. It love so thoroughly saturated everything that he did. And it was really neat to, to hear him speak early on uh, and eventually, I would get uh, several books, um, talk about some of the uh, common themes that he has spoken and written of uh, in, in a moment. But another thing that really stood out about Ravi Zacharias to me, and, and really this is kind of a, an element of all of the great thinkers and, and teachers, is they're not just going to tell you their own ideas. They're going to point you to the uh, people before them that had great ideas. and he was in many ways a gateway to other thinkers. Uh, some of the uh, more common uh, references that he makes are to Malcolm Muggeridge, which was a journalist author uh, in the mid-20th century, mid-late 20th century, I guess. Um, Steve Turner, who was also a journalist and a poet. Uh, one of his poems he referenced to uh, very frequently. Uh, Anthony, Anthony Flew, which was a very prominent atheist uh, philosopher, over the course of the 20th century, and so in, in many other uh, folks throughout history, and uh, the, the way he was able to not just expound on his own ideas, but actually point to where ideas come from and how they apply, uh, really did a masterful job. And even in his own organization, uh, RZIM, his partners there too that uh, really resonated with me over the years. John Lennox, who is a degreed mathematician and a very open Christian with debates and also a distinctive voice. He's uh, Irish, uh, so it's really neat to hear him talk. And also Nabil Qureshi, who converted from Islam. So Rabbi Zacharias had a way to reach people, and he also had a way to work with people and partner with others and, and not just bring glory to himself, but point his audience, uh, people like me, to these other phenomenal thinkers. And as I think about the impact that he's had on my life, there are several, I mean, really, I could go on and on with 
you know, just repeating stories that I've heard him tell over and over again that I've read in his books. But there are a few that I would really like to focus on uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with his work or not familiar with these particular ideas. Uh, these have really stood out as uh, very impactful to how I think about engaging, whether it's evangelical conversations or apologetic conversations or discipleship conversations, whatever the case is. These have really stood the test of time uh, for me uh, over the last decade or so, and I anticipate will uh, continue to reverberate uh, throughout my life. So I commend them to you, uh, and I hope they can be of some benefit. The first is his response to the problem of evil, uh, which I always found fascinating the way he phrases it. And he's always he's always got a really unique way with words, but you know, um, maybe most of us have encountered someone who uh, objects to the existence of God because of all of the, the evil in the world, right? We've heard of the, the problem of evil. He tells the story of uh, a questioner who asked this of him at, at a speaking engagement. And his response was, wait, when you talk about evil, you're assuming there's a such thing as good that you know, contrast with evil. And if you assume good and evil, then that requires a moral law. You've got to be able to differentiate between good and evil. And if you posit a moral law, then you have to have a moral law giver. Now, but that's who the questioner is trying to disprove rather than prove. And he works it backwards. He said, if there's no moral law giver, then there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, then there's no good. And if there's no good, there's no evil. The question breaks down on its face. And I really thought that was a neat way to put it. The first time I heard it, it's just one of those ideas that hits you like a ton of bricks. And the more I've thought about it, the more it, it really resonates with how we look at evil. It helps frame when something bad happens, whether it's sickness, suffering, whether it's personal, whether it's out in the world that we see, whatever the case is, it helps put a framework to it. If we're going to call something evil, uh, say that it's objectively bad, we're assuming that there's something good, right? That's bad. That should not be. There's something else that should be. And if we're going to say that, we've got to be able to tell the difference. What's bad, what's good, what's evil, and what's good. And in order to do that, we need a moral law of some kind. And if there's a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. The reason that there has to be a moral law giver, because that's usually the, the, the problem point there, is you know, why do you need a moral lawgiver? And his response to this is quite simply that when it comes to morality, it's inherently personal. Problems of evil are either raised about a person or by a person, sometimes both. But when it comes to morality, good and evil, it's inherently personal. So there has to be a personal giver of this law. Now, secular folks, these days, will certainly declare themselves uh, the moral lawgiver. Right? Moral relativists will say, look, everybody has the opportunity and the responsibility and the right to determine what's right and wrong for themselves, what's good and evil. And you know, that's one way to approach it. However, from a Christian view, 
we see that God, who created us in his image, revealed not only himself through creation, but himself specially through, among other ways, his law. And that law is a prescription for how we are to live, right? It is a code, a moral code, if you will, for perfection. And, and not to get too deep into Christian theology here, but recognize no one's perfect. No one's able to meet uh, those demands of the law. But the whole point of bringing this up is to show when somebody objects to the existence of God because there's such a thing as evil, if his standard of morality is based in and only of himself, then he has no reason to expect anybody else to necessarily agree with his standard of, of what is good and what is evil. It's that objective standard that's beyond you, that's beyond me, that applies to both you and me in order to make that observation valid. And that's where the Christian worldview can step in, where secular worldviews, where atheist worldviews, where humanistic worldviews, and where many other religious worldviews fail. Right, So he has this uh, really unique way of getting to the heart of the issue. Uh, so his response to the problem of evil, phenomenal. And that's really stuck with me over the years. Another aspect of his teaching that uh, was really interesting and really a neat idea to contemplate uh, when it comes to um, how we are sifting through worldviews, right? And we, Alex and I have talked about different topics of how various worldviews are going to apply to certain aspects of life. Ravi puts forth this four-point map of a worldview and the four components of a worldview. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What's the proper way to live? Again, the problem of evil comes in again. And where are we headed? What is our final destination? And any worldview that we're going to adopt needs to provide an answer to these questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What do we do while we're here? And where are we going? We look at worldviews from an atheistic standpoint, naturalistic evolution. For example, we'll say we got here through random mutations over time, just chance occurrences that went from single-celled organisms to ultimately us. And actually, if you want to go back further, you have the, the evolution from chemistry to biology, where everything was just chemicals, but life came from non-life. That's a whole other uh, can of worms on its own. But a naturalistic evolution uh, would say there's nothing special about us. Right? We are stardust. And as a result, there's no objective meaning to the world. There's no objective meaning for us. There's no reason we're here. It's just random chance. We're here. Until we're gone. And following from that, there is no objective morality. There's nothing that's actually right or wrong. Uh, we've had different thinkers over the years say, well, you know, might makes right. Uh, democ pure democracy would say that in a society, the majority rules and determines what's right. So you've got individual relativism, you've got 
cultural relativism, and throughout history, you see how the morality code changes. And so certainly some, some folks from that perspective would say, look, over time, there's a handful of moral ideas that have stuck. So those are the ones we need to keep. Things like don't kill, don't steal, don't inflict pain. And there's an obvious uh, question that arises. Why? Why is the the edict don't kill better than, well, I'm going to kill somebody who has what I want from a worldview that says we came from pond scum, we're stardust, biology that's evolved from chemistry that, you know, it's just here with no purpose. Who's to say, right? If, if it's all up to me, why not? And ultimately, it's a hopeless worldview because it's, it's going nowhere. You came from, came from nothing. You'll return to nothing. You were nothing before you were born. And after you die, you become nothing again. It's a, it's a really bleak worldview when you get into the atheistic viewpoints. And that's really the only option from that perspective. Whereas, Ravi would point this out, he would insert an alternative. Christianity says that we are special creations of God, made in his image. We are created for a purpose, to glorify him, to love him, to serve him, to love God, love neighbor. And the morality is consistent with the law that he's revealed, the person and work of Jesus Christ. The example that we have in Faithful Servants Past, uh, the morality of that worldview helps show us how to love God and how to love neighbor. And the destiny that we face is one day we're going to die, and after death comes the judgment. And if we are found in Christ, we have his righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law, which would usher us into heaven and eternal bliss with our Creator, or if we are not, we are judged according to our sinful deeds and condemned to eternity of torment apart from the grace and mercy found in Christ. And now certainly some people are turned off by that, understandably so. But the neat thing about this framework is when you're talking with somebody about a viewpoint that clearly disagrees with you, or maybe you think it disagrees, but you're not sure, you don't know uh, maybe a lot about this person. But as you're talking with ideas, keep these things in mind from what they're saying. If, If they're trying to convince you that Christianity is wrong, use this as a tool to compare. Right. What do they say is where we come from? What do they say is the meaning of life? Why are we here? What do they say is how we live a good life? And what do they say is where we're going? Right? Find out from their own mouth what they believe and make the comparison there. And he doesn't stop there, which is also helpful because 
the answers to these four questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny need to contain three elements. One is logical consistency. Right? The answer to the question has to match what we see in reality. Right? It's not true if it doesn't comport with reality. So there has to be a logical consistency to the answers. There also should be evidential adequacy for claims that require evidence. There needs to be that kind of evidence. Whether someone's going to point to the fossil record, for example, as evidence of naturalistic evolution, or whether someone's going to point to the early first century, mid late first century, and second and third centuries where Christianity rose in a hostile environment as evidence for Christianity, for example. Any number of evidences may be put forth, but there needs to be reasons why. So logical consistency, it's got to make sense with what we see in the world. Evidential adequacy, there has to be evidence to justify the claims. And the third, and this is a really neat, uh, again, a unique aspect of his teaching ministry, existential relevance. Something can be true, what would reality? Something can have proof, evidence to believe it. What does it mean for you? Are you able to apply it? What does it mean to live this out? What does it mean to apply this philosophy or this theology to your life? Because you know, we can could argue all day long about, for example, the Big Bang. But for the vast majority of us, what relevance does whether or not the Big Bang happened have on our lives? You ever think about that? Now, there are certainly good reasons to explore the question. But for the average person, the truth of the Big Bang, it can be true. There could be adequate evidence for it. But if it doesn't have that existential piece, that application to life, then somebody may just reject it out of hand because it doesn't matter to them. So for us, as we're thinking about these things, we can kind of filter through the worldview and see, how does it answer these questions? Does it all make sense? Is there evidence to back it up? And is there a way that this makes sense in, in our lives? Right? And it can also be helpful in understanding why somebody objects to what you're saying. Right? If you find that there's a different standard of truth, well, there's a way to continue the conversation in a productive manner. If there's a disagreement on what constitutes evidence, there again, another way to address the situation. If the issue is, even if it's true, it has no bearing on my life. Well, depending on what the topic of the conversation is, for example, the personal work of Christ and salvation, that definitely has existential relevance when it comes to our destiny, if nothing else, but certainly also our morality and the meaning of why we're here. So some things to consider with that as we're comparing worldviews and, and as you are speaking with, with people from other religions or maybe declaring no religion, this is a helpful tool really to, to filter through and, and have productive conversations and help you understand where they're coming from just as much as to help you frame 
how you uh, approach the issue. Finally, uh, the, the the third one that, that pops up, and this really was just something that was just almost a, a question that was asked rhetorically and in passing. But this was, a, I, I remember hearing it from a Q&A session years ago, but it's something that stood out to me then, and it's just one of those things that keeps coming back. And he asked the question, how do you reach a generation that listens with its eyes and thinks with its heart? It's a really poignant observation of our society then and now. Right? You can say something that's true, but if who you're proclaiming this truth to does not see this consistently in your life, you'll find you won't have a hearing with that person, with those people, depending on who they are. And for any number of people, this can work. Any number of, of worldviews, this works, right? If you have a worldview that declares there is an absolute truth and an absolute, absolute standard of goodness, what does that look like in your life? For Christians, you say that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. Does it reflect in your life? So what you say is not just heard, but seen in your actions. And the second part of that, the generation that thinks with its heart. Now, on one level, we can see, especially in the explosion of social media, emotional reactions to everything. Just knee-jerk. Everybody has a chance to comment on something. Everybody has a chance to add their two cents. Everybody's got a chance to start a podcast and talk about what matters to them. But on a deeper level, these truths, it goes back to the components of a worldview, answering those with existential relevance. Truth claims, especially the deepest truths of life, aren't just abstract. They're personal. They are what motivates us, right? When we talk about morality, when we talk about meaning, do we just have a job or do we have a purpose? And so when you're out, uh, as, as he was, in dozens, if not, you know, 100 plus countries, multiple continents, audiences of all different kinds of languages, and just an underlying driver recognizes the importance of not just speaking truth, but living it out, and not just promoting ideas that are cold, hard, but truths that touch the heart. And that's one of the things that really made his, his speaking especially, because when you hear him speaking, you hear the emotion in his voice, you can tell everything he's doing is out of concern for the person with whom he's talking. And notice, at least with these three, but his response to the problem of evil. It's a very personal question that's often brought up. When somebody has something traumatic happen to them in their life, 
where somebody has witnessed something traumatic. It's not just a cold, hard idea. It's a felt need that has to be addressed. When we're talking about a worldview, we're not talking about just abstract walls of logic or bones in the dirt. We're talking about truths that touch the human heart. They give us a reason to wake up in the morning amidst pain and suffering. For some of us, it's a daily reality. We need hope. We need love. We need to know that these things are real and not merely biochemical reactions or comfortable lies that we tell ourselves. And with our actions, are they consistent with what we say? And is what we do to reach this generation, is it reaching out a hand to grab their hand? Back in the, it was the late 80s, early 90s, Robbie had the opportunity to speak at the Veritas Forum, Harvard University. And I don't know if this was an exact transcript, probably edited, but the event that occurred was turned into a book called Can Man Live Without God? In this book, one of the uh, appendices transcribes a question and answer session that followed one of the speaking segments that he did. And one question in particular, I think, really stands out and helps explain and show the type of person that he was, the wisdom that he had, the love that he expressed for people and his desire, his earnest desire to see people come to know the Lord. The questioner asks, and I'll just read straight from his book here. You argue against Nietzsche in part because his position produced evils such as Hitler. But what about evils that Christianity has produced, such as its persecution of unbelievers during the Crusades? His response, that is a very good question, but there is an important difference. On the one hand, the evils of atheism are a direct outgrowth of the teachings of atheism. This is a most awkward and painful reality for atheists to admit. First, let me state clearly what I am not saying. I'm not saying that atheism equals killing. I'm not saying that all atheists are evil. To infer those conclusions, which I am denying, is merely to misunderstand or misrepresent the logical problem. I'm saying that violence is a logically deducible path from atheism, and may I recommend for your reading that Darwin himself categorically stated this in a world of natural selection. Tennyson, in pre-Darwinian poetic postulation, described nature, quote, red in tooth and claw, unquote. Where anti-theism has been the reigning ideology, blood has flowed without restraint. China, Russia, and Nazi Germany provide the gruesome tale of the tape. On the other hand, it is plain to see that where Christianity has wielded the sword and ground out pain upon people or ridden the political horse in triumph, it has only steered abysmally away from the path that Christ laid before his followers. The politicization of religion and history has more the fury of hell than the grace of heaven. Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor was not the first religious leader to drive Jesus out of the temple. 
Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world, else would my servants fight. Jesus never commanded the exploitation of people or the philosophy of violence. The use or abuse of Christianity in contradiction to the very message of the gospel reveals not the gospel for what it is, but the heart of man. That is why atheism is so bankrupt as a view of life, for it miserably fails to deal with the human condition as it really is. Thank you for listening. I hope that this has been helpful, that the ideas put forth here are able to be used in your life, uh, and that, if nothing else, this encourages you to think more deeply so that you may love more fully. I can't recommend his work highly enough, so get you one of his books. Check him out on, on YouTube. He's got some great, great material out there uh, that'll help you think through a myriad of objections. And let us know what you think. Facebook.com slash APT podcast. Shoot us a message, comment. We'd love to hear any feedback that you have. Again, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.